Okay, uh, good afternoon. Um, Reuters, of course, has not only uh, helped sponsor the Reuters Institute uh, here, but is uh, one of the oldest uh, professional news organisations in the world and has very recently celebrated its 200th anniversary. So it's very appropriate today that we've got uh, Jane Barrett here with us. Jane joined Reuters uh, as a graduate trainee straight from this university. Uh, she's worked as a foreign correspondent, uh, as a business editor for Europe, Middle East and Africa, and is currently global head of multimedia for Reuters. So uh, has uh, covered a variety of roles and uh, is going to talk to us how a venerable journalistic institution is facing up to the challenges of the multimedia age. Jane, you're very welcome. Thank you very much indeed. So thank, thank you so much for the opportunity to come and share a bit about what Reuters is doing. Um, I, I want to, to sort of take you through a little bit of the history, just because, as, as uh, Richard says, uh, Paul Julius Reuter was born 200 years ago um, this year, uh, about three weeks ago was his birthday, and, and sometimes by looking backwards, it's the best way of looking forwards. So if you'll allow me to give a little bit about the history of, of Reuters to start with, um, I promise it is relevant for what we do in 2016. Um, Reuter started his um, his business in 1851 uh, and became one of the key people who was sending information and news around the world. Um, he started off very locally um, and grew to such an extent that actually Warner Brothers made a film about him. Uh, this, this quote is from the film as it opens up. But then, even as now, men of journalism constantly search. It's a good one, isn't it? You know, you kind of feel good to be a journalist. Constantly search a faster means of bringing news to people. Speed and truth was the axiom of a great profession. Julius Reuter built his life on that axiom. And it's fair to say that Reuters is still built on that axiom of speed and truth. When I joined several years ago, um, the, the three words, or the three key values that were pumped into us were um, speed, accuracy, and freedom from bias. Uh, Reuters, as you might well know, we have uh, what we call the trust principles, which were put in uh, around the time of World War II, um, which were really specifically to to protect us from either the pressure to do propaganda um, and also protect us from the accusations of not doing propaganda. We promise to tell both sides of the story, however difficult that is. Um, at the moment, you can imagine how difficult that is with some of the, uh, the political ructions that we're seeing in Britain and in the United States, but also imagine the difficulties of trying to report both sides of what's happening in Mosul at the moment. It's incredibly hard to to, to get through to people on the BIS side and to get their side of the story, but it's something that we continually try to do to tell both sides of the story. And it's fundamental to us that we are free from bias, that we are continuing to try and tell the story as it happens. Um, today's talk is really about innovation and how we use technology to continue to innovate. Um, so this is the first bit of technology that we had. 24 pigeons, um, <laughs> um, and we, we love the pigeon story, so, so please uh, forgive me if, if you've heard the stories before, um, but we quite like our pigeon history, so it's, it's worth telling again. So when, when, when Reuter started off, um, it was the era of the first telegraphs, um, and there was a big gap in the telegraph between Aachen and Brussels. Um, it was 1851, people, uh, private companies were not allowed to use these public telegraphs. 
And so he thought, okay, well, I've still got to you know, get the news out, and how should I do it? So he got 45 carry pigeons um, to take news and prices between Brussels and Aachen and other cities around that sort of northwest Belgium and France area. Um, and so literally, as you can see in the lovely photograph from Warner Brothers, um, we would attach devices and bits of news to the feet of carrier pigeons and send them flying. And that was as modern as he could do it. It was as fast, it was the fastest way of getting news around and about the place. Of course, that didn't last very long because technology, as we know, has been radical um, in its revolution for the last few years. Um, so he moved on to telegraphs of his own. Uh, and this was the fastest way of getting news around. Um, so he invested strongly in technology in order to be able to get the news uh, around to people as fast as possible. And he realised as well that there was a general interest in having news quickly, but there was also a huge value to it. And if somebody could get the prices and the news a little bit faster than somebody else, then they could actually make some money. And there kind of began the arms race that we are still locked in um, you know, more than a century later uh, in, in all sorts of ways. Uh, we'll get on to some of them, but you know, we at Reuters have, have two main parts of our business. We have the financial part of our business where our key competitor is Bloomberg, and we have the media part of the business where probably our, our key competitor is the AP, but the AFP is very, very strong. Lots of others are strong in individual areas, Getty in, in photography, for instance, and, and other um, increasingly UGC, which again, we'll get on to. So you're, you're constantly in an arms race of speed, whether it's trying to get the rights to a piece of UGC um, off Twitter, or if it's nanoseconds to get out a piece of financial information on which a trader, or more likely a computer, will now trade. That arms race has been going on since Julius Reuter had his, his telegraphs um, and his steamers. Um, this is kind of a, an interesting little one. So the telegraphs used to be based in the west, on the west coast of the UK, down in Cornwall. Um, then some nifty little competitors started thinking actually, you know, they come in and they get some extra water. The ships come into Cork, so we'll get the, the information of Cork and we'll telegraph across from there. So Julius Walter's starting to lose. And so then he decided, okay, well, I'll get a whole so fleet of ships which will, which will float out from Crookhaven, mm -hmm. the very far southwest, um, and go out to the ships. And they used to literally throw the news in waterproof canisters off the ship as they were coming in. And the, the Marseille would be out there picking up all the canisters hand them to lots of clerks who were sitting down in the back <coughs> of the ship, writing out the telegraphs, ready to send as soon as they got to Cork, so that they'd be ahead of the people who are only just opening accounts. I mean, like, it's, it's literally been an arms race. And the arms race has been somewhat flattened by this. Um, we are now not only fighting against Bloomberg and AP, we are fighting against, you know, 6 billion or 6.5 billion smartphones that there are around the world. Everyone is a journalist, everyone can be a journalist now. Um, by telling the story from their smartphone. Um, it is usual now, I should put it the other way around, it is highly unusual now for a big story to break out of the blue, um, an attack, an earthquake, uh, something of, of huge interest. Very unusual for a journalist to be the first person to get footage of that. Um, you probably saw some of the videos from the New Zealand earthquake um, over the weekend 
and it was mostly people on their smartphones or CCTV cameras that gave us the best footage. Um, and so we're, we're in a totally different world. And I'm sure that, that our founder would be quite delighted by it, probably rubbing his hands in glee and thinking, right, what can we do next? What can we do next? And I think that's probably for everyone in this room, the challenge of, you know, how do we take that pioneering spirit where competitors were few and the barriers to entry were very high? How do we take that same competitive spirit and that same winning spirit into a world where the competitive barriers are incredibly low um, and everyone can, can be a journalist in their own right? So what is Reuters doing about it? Um, a lot of the, the, the things I'm going to talk you through are, are relatively familiar, I should imagine. Um, but as an agency, I thought it would be interesting just to give you a bit of an explanation about what we're trying to do and how it might be different from some of your companies and some of your backgrounds. So as I said, Reuters has two main parts of its business, the financial part and then the, the media agency part. And being in the media agency gives us enormous opportunities and also some enormous challenges. Um, the enormous opportunities are that we are global. Um, we have 2,500 journalists around the world working in a mixture of text, graphics, pictures, and video. Um, we have an enormous amount of technology, as you can imagine, to, to, to get those guys and girls bring, bringing us the news from, from all the different corners of the world. And yet, we're not doing it necessarily for our own glory. Um, we're doing it for, for our clients to have the, the content that they need. Of course, we like having the glory with our clients that we were first and that therefore they, they will renew their subscriptions and they will keep working with us. Um, but it is, slightly strangely in this day and age, a little bit faceless. Um, when you watch the evening news, you don't necessarily know that a huge proportion of that footage is from Reuters, if you watch the evening news, it's rather an old-fashioned thing to do now. But, um, but even if you're watching the, the, the digital clips of the evening news or of, of different stories, a lot of it, be it branded by the New York Times, by CNN, by the BBC, by ABC, by the Singapore Straits Times, a lot of it is Reuters footage, but you can't tell, and it's in our client's interest for you not to be able to tell, and it's therefore in our interest for you not to be able to tell. Um, <coughs> Ditto on our, on, our, on our text file, very few of our bylines have been incredibly well known. That's starting to change now just because of things like Facebook Live and much more of a sort of direct relationship between consumer and journalist. Um, but as an agency, our job is to serve our clients and it's to serve our clients with the raw information that they need um, to, to, to be able to tell the story. And speed and truth are still very much the, the things that people are looking to us for. So a modern journalist looks much more like this than it looks like somebody in the scrum. So this is our fantastic correspondent, Girish Gupta. He is based in Caracas, Venezuela. Um, and he is, um, as you can see, currently doing a piece of camera, with his shirt being held up by the red microphone, I see now. But, um, sorry about that, actuated. Um, and, and Girish is, is, is classic of, of, of many of our new generation journalists, but also our old generation journalists who are having to learn new skills. But we're now training people to be able to not just write, but to be able to take photographs and to take video. To 
think very more, much more imaginatively about how we would want to tell our stories and how our clients would therefore want to tell the story. Are they going to want it in video? Are they going to want a slideshow? Are they going to want a voice file? Are they going to want text? Are they going to want a typical inverted pyramid? Are they going to want a fact box? Otherwise now known as a listicle. Um, you know, how, how are we going to tell our story? What, what are the different formats? Um, someone like Girish, um, he's, he's both a very good journalist, he's also a very good technologist. So he's sort of created lots of cool apps and little RSS feeds from different places so that he can do data journalism while he's on the go on his mobile phone and he sets himself up and does this kind of, he's a kind of, he really is a one-man band type guy. Um, so he's probably on the extreme of things. However, multimedia, people say to me, well, what, does, what does global head of multimedia really mean? And, and it means lots of things internally as to the changes that we're making. But really, multimedia, as I keep telling people at Infinitum, possibly at Nauseam, at Reuters, is, is not, it's, it's not a new project. It's not a little add-on. It's simply the way that we work. It's the way that journalists have to work in the 21st century. It's the way that we tell stories. Um, so just as back in the 1860s when people were throwing canisters with news off, off ships. Um, now people are expecting to be able to read the news on their mobile phone, they expect it to be visual, they expect it to be fast, they expect it to be compelling, and they expect to be able to either get through it very, very quickly or to know that it's worth their time to invest several thumb scrolls down and down and down the page. Or just sit in that safer later and never come back to it button. Um, so, so some of the challenges that, that we've been facing, as, as I said, as a large organisation with 2,500 people, is how do you start making multimedia be the way that you work? You've got some people who are very stuck in their ways, in, in, in all of the different groups, right? So you've got videographers who just want to take agency footage the way that they always have, and they will literally be repeating to themselves, wide shot, medium shot, close up. One side of the story, other side of the story, action, reaction, done. Edit, send, next. You know, and, and, and it's brilliant. And they're very fast and they're very competent and they do lots of stuff. And then they hate it when we come back to them and say, that's not going to work for digital. <laughs> you know, I serve broadcasters. And then you say, well, which of our broadcast clients aren't digital? You know, which, which of our broadcast clients don't now have a group um, or indeed all of their staff? thinking this is how I cut it for broadcast and this is how I cut it for digital. And because I'm being recorded, no names, no patrol about which clients I've been talking to, um, some of you might recognize the stories. Um, but we have, our, our clients are going through the biggest and most tumultuous change um, that most people there have remembered. Um, and, and most of us remember, the, the, the just I don't need to tell you, going through such enormous ructions. Um, how do we make money out of digital? We have to be there, but how on earth do you make any money out of it? So we have clients who have come to us and saying, can you actually just shoot a little bit differently so that we can cut it into vertical? Or actually, can you shoot vertical for us? The answer is yes, if you pay us. <laughs> but, you know, but for the time being, let's, let's do it a different way. Um, we have clients coming to us saying, um, you know, can you help us uh, work out how to just cut seven, seven seconds out of everything. Can you just give us, can you highlight your top seven seconds of every single video? 
uh, we've had clients coming to us asking whether we can put together our slideshows that we do from the, from the Reuters photo archive and, and the regularly updated time. <coughs> can you give us a slideshow in video format so that we can just put it up on, on the web as a slideshow that's moving through um, telling the story of something? And it's great because we get to partner with our clients and understand really some of the stresses and strains that they're going through. Um, we get to work with them not just on what the stories are, but how do we deliver the stories to them? How can we work with their internal systems to make sure that if we can't provide that for whatever reason, and normally it's just, well, it's only one client and it would take a whole extra body. You know, so it's kind of just the cost versus the, the reward. Um, but then how can we work with you to make it happen <coughs> instead? So the role of agency has now gone from being a, a content supplier, where just it was a big pipe of stuff coming down to you and people would wait, okay, Reuters has got something and tearing it off the tape, to a very regular conversation with clients about what do you want, how can we better provide that? Does it belong better in your CMS or does it belong better in a cloud server where you can put it down? Does, you know, how should we get this content to you? Would you, you know, we have a service called Teema whereby people no longer have to take their whole sat truck and hire satellites or live views or whatever. We have our, our stand-up position. People can come and stand in front of our position and we have all the infrastructure and they pay us a fee for, for that so they don't have to worry about having fixed costs of sat trucks and things. So we've kind of gone from a pure content provider to a content and service provider. And believe me, as a, as a business editor, if anyone sat there in front of me saying products and services, I'd sit there. My eyebrows would go up and say, okay, tell me what you really mean. And I'm, I know I'm saying products and services, so I apologize. Um, you, can, you can do the journalist call out on me for, for jargon. But it, it, service is just another word for partnerships and actually talking to our clients about what they need and then working very closely with them to make sure that they get what they need. So it's all, I mean, innovation, therefore, is both in the news gathering, um, it's also in the delivery, it's also in, sorry, horrible business web, the products that we do. So just in the last 11 months since I've been doing this job, numerous new things have come up, have become popular, and Royce has been, oops, sorry, has been um, helping sell our clients with, with different new products in order to help our clients reach new audiences on new platforms. So, you know, we know that the audience is sitting on Facebook and Google because that's where all the ad dollars are going. It's causing us numerous problems, but as an industry. Um, but, you know, if your audience, if your new audience is on Facebook, how do you appeal to them? Um, so just a few of the things that we've been playing with. Um, interactive graphics. I'm, I'm so sorry that this still shows that Hillary was winning. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I meant to go on yesterday and get a new screenshot, but uh, I, I totally ran out of time, so I apologise. Anyway, this was our lovely interactive graphic. Um, so, as we know, interactive graphics are, are incredibly popular, and it's, it's such a big piece of data work, and we have a data team. So, one of the things that we have been, been working on has been uh, plugging in huge amounts of data and then making it very, very malleable for our clients. So that this is what it looks like in a, in a very plain vanilla Reuters um, skin, to put it that way. But all of that is essentially just skin on data. 
that any client could have taken and just played with. And you could, you know, you could scroll up and down to change the demographics of the voters, change the turnout, change the turnout of individual demographics, etc., to see, you know, what needed to happen for each of the candidates to win which electoral colleges. Um, so again, it's trying to make products that help our clients attract audiences. So we hear, I'm sure you've heard, heard people talking now about the gamification of news, like people actually getting their, starting to engage with the news, engage with what the issues are, and how do you make that happen in a world where a lot of people are flicking through their Facebook feed, reading lots of headlines and not really bothering to read what's behind those headlines. So this is one of the things that we've been playing with, um, getting people to play with interactive graphics, getting people to see you know, where the fault lines are, we've got another one that shows you where the fault lines are, and if an earthquake hits here, where's the tsunami, to pattern, etc. So, trying to help through our data, through our coding, to provide things that then people can skin differently, so it looks like this. Um, caption video, we're all pretty familiar now with caption video on, on various different platforms. Um, this was actually an experiment that we started just because we, we saw that that was the way that um, the trends tended to be going. Um, so we started playing this at the beginning of the year. Um, and we realised pretty fast that A, it was doing incredibly well, and B, that other people didn't have the staff to be able to make them, and that they were actually looking towards us to provide that as content. Um, this again is the Reuters skinning of it. Um, so we have white and sort of uh, orangey yellow um, as our two colours. Uh, the way that it's delivered to clients is increasingly malleable. So you can have it in English, Spanish and Portuguese so far, seem to be Mandarin as well. Uh, you can change the colours, you can change the fonts, you just change that once and then the machine does the rest. Um, so that you are getting short, as you can see this is 59 seconds. Um, just short, sharp, sweet, trying to get to the nub of the story very, very quickly for an international audience. Um, again, just, we have our correspondents all around the world, we also have our clients all around the world. So some stories might seem blatantly obvious to a French, in this case, um, audience, but it's not necessarily obvious to a Mexican audience. So you're always trying to keep that global point of view <coughs> on things. Um, immersive journalism, nice big question for us all as to how that's going to play out. Um, we don't know. Uh, we have no crystal ball any more than anyone else does. Um, but it's, it's interesting enough for people to want to play. It's also pretty expensive to get going. Um, if you're the New York Times or the Guardian, well, New York Times first, um, then you actually have the money that you're going to put into an experimental group to play with, um, with VR and 360. Um, if you are a small local newspaper um, in you know, northwest Germany, you don't necessarily have the stuff and the kit and the money to be able to create 360 stuff. So what we've been doing is in partnership with Samsung, we have been uh, doing 360 um, photographs and 360 videos. And I forgot to get the Wi-Fi working, otherwise I'll show you so it really is 360 promise. Um, but yeah, and, and, and again, this, this merging of products and services, we are producing this as content, but then we are also, we, create, we didn't start the project until we knew that we had a player that any of our clients around the world 
could just take that player, embed it into their site, and it would work for them, or embed it into their Facebook feed, and it would work for them. So they didn't have to do any of the, <coughs> um, any of the investment on the display side. That was all provided um, as part of the as part of the content. Um, and it's experimental at the moment. It's not going to win us any fantastic prizes, I don't think, um, because we've just got lots of people out there playing. Um, but we should get a prize for experimental innovation. Um, and, and, it's, and it's great as well for, for our staff. And, and this is kind of such a fundamentally important part. You know, we, we do talk about making money because we all need to take our salaries and eat and sleep and a house and things. Um, but it's also such an exciting time to be a journalist. And you know, we have some, they'll forgive me for saying this, but we have some really crusty photographers who believe that you cannot possibly take a, a publishable um, photograph with an iPhone. And that you really do need to be carrying around some back-breaking lenses and things. And we won the Pulitzer this year for our photography, and it was taken on some fabulously expensive cameras and with some fabulous talent behind it. Louise and I were discussing on the train on the way up, one of the award-winning photographs is of a man carrying his child in the water in the Mediterranean, uh, taken by our colleague Alkis. And it was only when he zoomed in that he saw that he had a really prize-winning photograph, because he had it on a mega, mega, mega telephoto lens. Of course, you can't do that on an iPhone because of digital zoom and the like. But you know, we have photographers who have made great careers and and great told great stories through very very professional photography. They don't much like the idea that text journalists can turn up with an iPhone and take a photograph to go with their story. Um, but they're loving 360 because it's a whole new area that they can use their eye, they can use their technology skills, etc., to play with the new format. Um, and to start pushing out their boundaries as well of, of, of their skill and of their, their storytelling. Um, and I realise I haven't really explained too much. I said Ed Girish was fantastic. I haven't explained to you what, what we're doing um, on other things. It's, it's relatively obvious. Um, pretty much all of our correspondents by the end of next year will be trained to, be, to report for text and to report visually. So if you're a photographer, we don't expect you to learn how to write in an inverted pyramid anytime soon, particularly seeing as the vast majority of our photographers do not have English as their first language. But we are training people in terms of, well, what are the questions that text is going to need in order to be able to write up your story? So we had a, an example yesterday from Serbia, was it? Mm -hmm. Serbia. Where our photographer had gone off with a whole set of questions, asked all the questions that had been written into a beautiful text story, Bob's your uncle, his his, uh, his byline's on the top of the story, he's happy, he was helped before, somebody else wrote it for him, lovely. And that's what we need, what we need to happen throughout the, the, the company, simply for efficiency and for volume. You know, people need lots of stories from us, we can't do it if we're sending three people out on every story to do pics, video and text. Equally, our, all of our colleagues on the text file, be they reporters or, or editors, will be trained on, on visuals. So if you're a desk editor, how do I choose a great file photograph to go with this story if there isn't a fresh one? Um, how do I cut video? How do I use video to help me edit the story? And if you're a reporter, what can you shoot? Or if you're not going to be shooting, what do I need to be thinking in order to help my visuals colleagues to be able to shoot? And it's difficult. You know, different 
media have different timescales. Video and photography tend to be very, very fast. It's shot to send it. It's shot to send it. Whereas on text, sometimes it's incredibly fast. Something's happened, snap it. But sometimes you want to write a much more insightful and thoughtful piece, at which case it might take you know, a week, two weeks to report and be edited and go backwards and forwards. So the, the photographers and video guys hate it when text stories take ages to get out. And meanwhile, the poor text person is tearing out their hair saying, you've got to move my, you've got to move my piece because otherwise the video guys are going to go ahead of me. Um, so there's a lot of cultural change as you're doing this. But one of the exciting things is that people want to have new skills. You know, we live in the 21st century. It's no longer kind of enough, frankly, to be a monomedia journalist. People need to be able to think about how to tell their stories, what formats, and then be able to achieve it themselves. So that's kind of a very quick run-through. I think I've more or less kept my half hour. Um, quick run-through of, of, of why technology has been important, how it fits into our, um, our values of speed and truth, and how it fits into our business of serving our clients, and how it's also helping us to develop and increase the skills of voices journalists around the world. Jane, thank you very much.